So we've got Ezekiel 37 and 34. The book of Ezekiel was written against the background people in exile. Ezekiel was 25 years old in 597 when the armies of Babylon besieged Jerusalem and the city fell. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, ordered neither mass deportation or mass destruction, but rather he just skimmed the leadership off of the top of that city and that nation and shipped them off to Babylon so that Ezekiel and thousands of others like him were marched in chains hundreds of miles across the desert and they took up residence in what would be comparable to a refugee camp by the name of Tel Abib. They'd been there six years when God began to vision to Ezekiel visions of these weird and wonderful things that are found in the book of Ezekiel that you've read and never have been able to get a clue as to what they're about. The purpose of these visions was to help these people to reevaluate their image of God, to, to understand really what God was like. Now we arrive at wrong conclusions often because we begin from false assumptions. And these people had two erroneous assumptions about God. One was that God was a local deity, a territorial God who, who lived in Jerusalem and especially in the temple. They, were, they believed that this is our God and He lives in Jerusalem and we've got Him in the temple. A local deity. Now the people who believed this had forgotten that this God they believed had, had come to Abraham in Mesopotamia and to Moses at Sinai. He'd even come down to Egypt to deliver his people. But they believed that they had God bounded by Jerusalem and bordered by the temple and he belonged to them, a local deity. The second false assumption was that they believed that since this was God's territory and these were his people, that everything would be all right. He'd protect them and keep them regardless of what occurred. Like some spoiled child believing that his parents' only hope is to satisfy his every whim and they'll always be there to pick up the pieces no matter what the spoiled child does. They believed that God was so committed to them that it didn't matter what they did, he'd always be there to pick up the pieces. And so they were devastated and almost destroyed, no wonder, when the city fell and they were carried away into bondage. Now the conclusion they came to as a result of that was that God couldn't be trusted. You can't depend on God when the chips are down. I mean, He's there at the temple when you bring your sacrifices and when you come to offer praise to Him. But when the going gets tough and the times are difficult, you can't trust God. He's not here with us. And Ezekiel comes to tell them, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. The reason you came to this conclusion is because you began from a false premise. I've had these visions of God, visions of hope, and I've come to tell you to keep your head up and don't give up because I bring you a message of hope. Now the message of hope that Ezekiel brings 
to the exiles in Babylon are found primarily in two visions. The first is in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. It's the account of these, this valley of dry bones. And I told them in the early service I wasn't going to attempt to sing, you know, the song, these bones connected to the, you know, that kind of thing. But I will read the text. Follow with me. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones, and he caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they are very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God to these bones, says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked. And behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves. My people and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now Ezekiel may have seen a scene exactly like this. Because often the losing army in those battles was left unburied on those desert battlefields. And years later, perhaps, some caravan of people crossing across the country would happen upon some ravine literally strewn with dead bones, with dead bodies, with bleached bones. There is no image that more graphically describes the despair of these people than that. It is a glimpse into the hopelessness and the despair that had settled down upon these refugees. It was as foolish to hope in their condition as it would be to believe that a dead man who had been dead so long that his bones were bleached by weather could live again. And so the, the question is, can these bones live? In other words, the question is, do you believe in the power of God in the face of the most impossible situation? The question is, you look down the, the agenda of your life and you find the worst possible condition in it. And the question is, do you believe that God can take that 
that has answers to that, has cures for that? Do you believe in the face of the most impossible tasks? God has power to redeem and save. Well, you see, the question is, do you have hope? Do you have faith? For faith has the prerogative to believe when senses say it is impossible. And what the question is, really, is this. Do you believe that this God who mysteriously gives life in the first place is able to give that life again anew after you've wasted it and abused it? Do you believe that the God who gave life in the first place is able to take this life that you have abused and wasted it and give you a second chance to make something out of it? Jeremiah believed that. And he went down and he watched that potter work on the wheel, that, that vessel. It's the most magnificent parable in Scripture of the indomitable patience of God. And, and, and the clay was marred in the hand of the potter. And, and so he took the clay and he made it again. And the thing that astounded Jeremiah and made this a gospel for him was what the potter did with the second chance. He could have just discarded this clay and said, it's useless, I'll throw it away and I'll get some more somewhere else. But he didn't. He took the same clay that had been marred and he picked up the pieces and he molded them into another lump and he made again another vessel. And Jeremiah said, that's God. For God doesn't throw us away when we fail the first time. And He doesn't discard us. He, he gives us another chance. A second chance. Why was Jacob not discarded when he was so deceitful and so wicked? And why didn't David get thrown on the trash heaps of history when he committed that dark sin that made his name a byword in the land? And why didn't he give up on Simon Peter when he denied him and ran for his life? And what about Saul the blasphemer? Well, the fact is that, that God's will is stubborn to save. The fact is that God doesn't give up. Now, how far can we, how far can we take this matter of hope? I mean, death is the ultimate limitation as far as human beings are concerned. You've heard the old adage, as long as there's life, there's hope. How, how long can we take, how far can we take this matter of hope? But death is all around us today. It's the big bully on the block of life is death. He finds us in the alleys and he taunts us on the playground and he follows us home and he tells us again and again, you're going to die too one day. And we recognize him as he ex escorts the hearse-led procession down the street. And he's in the waiting room when you come out of the double doors of the ICU unit. And he's nearby when you look at the bloated bodies, the pictures of bloated bodies of the starving in Bangladesh. And he's there to taunt. You too are going to die someday. Now these folks were dead. I mean, they were so dead that their bones were bleached by the weather. And what God is saying is this, that even though the ultimate limit of man is death, God Himself has breached that boundary. Can these bones live? Think of how the disciples must have felt when they took Jesus down from the cross. 
and the wind taunted, can these bones live? And the grave mocked, can he live? And the soldiers sneered, can this man live? And three days later the earth shook, and God answered with a resounding yes. For even the boundary of death has been breached by God, and, and he knows his way out of a grave. And so Jesus walked among the sad, the tear-stained cheeks of people who mourned, and he listened to the mourning of the paid mourners and their wailing, and to the subtle rebuke of Mary and Martha when they said to him, If you'd been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus said, Show me the grave. And they took him to this grave, which was really a cave that had a stone rolled in front of it. And the stone mocked, No more. No more will these hands move. No more will these lips speak. And Jesus said, Quietly but sternly, Move the stone. And the women said, Well, well our Lord, he's, he's been dead three days. His body will, will stink. And Jesus said, Move the stone so you can see God. For stones have never gotten in the way of God. Not 2,000 years ago in Bethany, not 100 years ago in Europe. She was a Hoverian countess. And she didn't believe in God and she taught emphatically in the land that it was foolish to think that one would ever be called from a grave. And so shortly before her death, she gave specific instructions that when she was buried, her grave was to be sealed with a granite slab and huge stones were to be placed around the grave, attached with iron clamps to each other and to the marble slab, to the granite slab. And the epitaph was to read, This burial place has been purchased for all eternity and shall never be opened. That was it. That was the final word. But a little birch tree about the size of my finger had something yet to say. And somehow it got its roots in the crack of that granite slab and sent them deep into the earth and began to force its way. And it forced its way till one day the iron clamps popped open and the slab, granite slab, moved. And today that granite slab leans against the trunk of that giant tree. And that hopeless epitaph is silenced forever by a stubborn tree or a powerful God, for he has breached the boundaries of death. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is at His best when you are, your life is at its worst. It means that the ultimate despair is a presumption. It means don't give up, for nothing is impossible with God. It means that there is no such thing as an irreparable tragedy. It means that God knows how to get out of graves. Now, what does that mean for Christians? Here's a Christian, he knows. He knows that there's, there are tribulation and trouble in life, and he knows he's not exempt from sorrow he may, or suffering. He may experience it more than anybody else, but he's read the final chapter, and he's full of joy because he knows that one day Christ will reign on this earth. And so this message of hope to Ezekiel is... 
God may not save you from trouble, but He saves you in it. Second message. He may not save you from the desert, but He seeks you there. Now, chapter 34, for the want of time, I'm going to read verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. A remarkable disclosure of God. Now the people in Ezekiel's day, thinking God was this local deity, would be confined to the temple. If you want to find God, you go to church to find Him. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel comes with this incredible New Testament vision and says to them, No, God comes to the deserts to seek us. And if you read chapter 34, you'll find that Ezekiel is condemning the leadership of Israel because they did not faithfully shepherd the flock. But God assumes that role for Himself to care and feed for the flock. And He says, Like a shepherd, I'm coming to the desert to seek and to save those who have wandered and gotten lost. Now watch two things about this message of hope. First of all, it is a search that's based on inquiry. Now the word in verse 11 for search really means to ask after, to inquire about, to ask after. Can you imagine this? If you have teenage children or have had teenage daughters, you don't have to use your imagination. Two teenage girls are talking on the telephone. One of them says to the other with a little bit of, with a little squeal of delight, do you know that, do you know Jim in our math class? You know that hunk, you know, in our math class? Guess what? Yesterday he was asking about you. Asking about me comes the delighted reply. What did he say? One morning my telephone rang and before I could hardly say hello, a lady on the other end of the line with an excited scream said, Brother Gerald, I finally found my real mother. I knew what she was talking about. I recognized her voice. Adopted when she was a baby, she had spent a lifetime looking for her mother. She literally hounded relatives to death. And she, she was a nuisance to the courthouse and to the, to the adoption agencies over and over and over again. She went over it asking after her mother. One of these days in the desert, your phone is going to ring and before you can say hello on the other end of the line, the Father is going to say, Child, it's your Heavenly Father. I've been searching for you before the foundation of the world. It's a search based on inquiry. It's a search Blessed by individuality. Now the interesting thing about verse 11 is that the word sheep there is in the singular. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough of thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. Singular. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying that God is coming to the deserts of our life and take us back one at a time. Occasionally, I happen down by the nursery and I watch as the little kids are waiting for their parents. And there might be one child whose parents have been detained, you know, talking and, and, and he's watching. You can just see he's wondering, you know, where's my mom and dad? And he's watching as these other children leave. And all of a sudden you can see his face light up like the sun and he, he starts getting his stuff together and getting his papers and getting all that belongs to him and, and you just know his time has come. And you can turn around and, and you, you can see that the people he's been waiting for have come for him. See, that's what this is about. God says, I'm coming to the desert for you. God told me the other day he had a sonar fish finder. Any of y'all got a sonar fish finder? A sonar fish finder. I said, you know, I'm not a fisherman. Wasn't you, Ed? He said, I, he said, I, he said I, I said, what is a sonar fish finder? He said, well, it's a kind of a device. He said, it looks kind of like a hair dryer. You put the end of it down in the water and you push a button and, and you see all these fish on this screen. That kind of brought me up short. I, that really didn't turn me on. I mean, I'm not a fisherman, but does that seem fair? I mean, <laughs> a, a sonar fish finder? I thought that a part of fishing was that you, you got you a cane pole and a, or a hook and you went out not knowing where they were. And a part of the challenge was, you know, hoping you'd hit, you know, hit it. Most of the time, they're somewhere else when I'm out. But, but you know, uh, it's kind of me. Sonar fish finders kind of are to me kind of like those artificial logs that are in a fireplace. It just doesn't do much for me. You know. And one day, Simon Peter came up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, they wanted to know why we haven't paid the temple tax. And Jesus checked the treasury, and he found they didn't have any money. One of the most remarkable miracles in all of Scripture. Now watch this. He said to Simon, he said, get your hook. That must have really shook him. Because they used nets to fish. I mean, they just, they just got a bunch of net fish and they just took out what they wanted. They had sonar fish finder. They, just, they got nets and hauled them in. But Jesus said, get your hook and put it in the lake. And the fish that has a coin in its mouth, that's the one you bring back. And we'll use it to pay the temple tax. Now, it seems to me, folks, that if God knows the fish that has a coin in its mouth in a sea where fish swarm, He knows where you are. If He knows where some tiny fish is that has a coin in His mouth, He knows where to look to find you. And so God said to Ezekiel, you go back and you tell those folks that I know where every single one of them is. I know them by face and by name. I know the condition that they live in. Hallelujah for that. He said, I'm coming one day to get them one at a time. Magnificent message, hope. Now I need to say this. 
that God seeks us in the deserts of life and saves us in the trouble by the power of His living Word. For did you notice? God said to Ezekiel, You say the Word, you speak my Word, and these bones will live. For there is life in my Word. Bill Bentley in 1938 was a missionary in to the Tels, the Zeltals, T-Z-E-L-T-A-L-S, Indian tribe, Zeltals, in the southernmost part of the nation of Mexico, down near the nation of Guatemala. And his mission there was to translate the New Testament into their language, into their dialect. His fiancée, Mariana, was working with another tribe on the other side of the mountain. They went back to Pennsylvania to get married. And they were going to go back to the, to the Zeltals to serve. Six days before the wedding, Bentley died. Now Mariana assumed that the Lord wanted her to go to the Zeltals with, with Bill. But now she assumed God wanted her to go alone. So she went. When she got to Mexico, it took her ten days to get to the village. Five by foot, five on horseback. For six years she labored trying to learn their dialect and translate the New Testament into that language. She lived, those people lived in poverty, disease, suspicion, uh, superstition, alcoholism. After six years, a woman joined her, a missionary nurse by the name of Florence, and for eight more years they labored together. They weren't received. They, looked, they were looked upon and, and rejected, and they were suspicious of them, and they hated them, but they stayed. At the end of 20 years, they had the Word of God, New Testament, translated into their dialect. A miracle happened. Immediately, Seventy congregations of believers sprang up. No longer was there suspicion. Their suspicion was turned to trust. No longer rejection, but acceptance. No longer hostility, but love. And these Zeltos called this Word of God His good, work, good seed. And that seed was planted. And everything was great. And these two women thought, we'll live here the rest of our life and we'll translate the Old Testament into their dialect. That was going great until Cameron Townsend showed up one day. Cameron Townsend told them about a group of Indians called the Paez Indians down in Colombia who had never had the Word of God and asked that somebody take them the Word of God. So, kind of sponsoring them, the Zeltos sent Mariana and Florence to Colombia. And for the next 20 years, they learned another dialect and they translated the New Testament to the Paez. At the end of that 20 years, they thought, it's time to go back and visit the sponsoring church. And so they went back to the mountains of Mexico and to their amazement, thousands of Zeltos lined the roads and cheered as they went into the village. And that congregation numbering 70 had grown to 322. And when they had left 20 years before, there were 6,000 believers. Now there were 44,000. And one-third of all the Zeltas were believers. 
Hallelujah for the living Word of God. It's alive, is this Word. It treats me like a human. It wrestles with me and rebukes me and comforts me and it puts its cold hand upon my brow when I'm fevered and it encourages me when I'm discouraged and I can be exhausted and I can come to this Word and it makes me live. And because it's alive, it gives life. This pulpit's not alive and cannot give life, but this Word is alive and thus it gives life. It's alive like my hand is alive because it's attached to the source of life in my chest. And this Word is His living Word. And so Jesus stood one day and said, The time is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of God and live. And the time is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of God and live. Can these bones live? Can this church live? Can this situation that has you hopeless, does he have an answer? Listening, listen to the rattling of the bones. Look at the appearance of the flesh. Feel the breath of life. These bones live. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your word, as George has said, shall not fall away void. Speak, Lord, words of life, hope, encouragement. For I pray in Jesus' name. Look here, has God spoken to you? Has God spoken to you? God has said, if you come this morning and give me your heart, I will give you a new birth. You give me your faith, I'll give you a new birth, a new life. You come giving me your trustful surrender, and I will give you life, abundant, endless, eternal. Would you do it? Stepping out in faith, coming to trust Jesus alone? Is there one this morning in the midst of a hopeless situation? As hopeless as dead bones bleached on a desert valley? By faith this morning, you come and God says to you, Give me your life. You've got to give me your life. I, I've got to have your cooperation. You give me that situation. You give me that life. I'll give you hope and life abundant. Would you do it? While we stand to sing our invitation, would you come? On the first word, you'll need to be coming while we sing.